Welcome to Marrow Masters Season 5, sponsored by the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, CGEN, Omeros Corporation, and the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. The National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, established in 1992, strives to help patients, caregivers, and their families cope with the psychosocial challenges of transplant from diagnosis through survivorship. Here's your host, Executive Director of the NBMT Link, Peggy Burkhardt. Welcome, everyone. This series focuses on survivorship. Whether you are five minutes into survivorship or 25 years plus, we have perspectives that will speak to you, inspire you, and help you at every turn. When patients enter survivorship, it is truly a gift, but it also can be overwhelming at times and emotionally draining. This season, we'll focus on helping survivors and caregivers better understand the despair, mental challenges, some work career issues, chronic graft-versus-host disease, and the role it plays in survivorship, giving back, not giving up, finding your herd, and so much more. So grab a few minutes, grab some coffee, settle in, and get ready to be enlightened and educated as you make a few new friends along the way who will share their grit, intense honesty, and determination to not only get through this, but to thrive and live their best life. So today we welcome Dr. Omar Durrani of Dallas, Texas. Dr. Durrani will share his very unique perspective as the dad of a pediatric survivor, a physician, and the donor to his young daughter, Kenza. Welcome, Dr. Durrani. It is certainly a pleasure to have you with us today, and I'm so excited to dig in and hear your family story. You obviously wear many hats, and your perspective promises to be healing, inspiring, and humbling. Let's get to it. Let's hear Kenza's story. Thank you, Peggy, for having me here uh, on this podcast. I'm excited to be here. In regards to Kenza's story, she was our firstborn daughter, born in June of 2015. And as new parents, uh, everything is sometimes uh, a little intimidating when it comes to getting used to dealing with a newborn and a new family member, but it was absolutely an amazing experience. One of the unique aspects of this uh, was as we went along, I was in my third year of residency at UT Southwestern, finishing up family medicine and then graduating from residency around that time. As Kenza grew up, uh, which was a normal pregnancy and birth, uh, around nine months of age, she started getting a swollen lymph node or a swollen gland on the right side of her neck. And this is something that commonly occurs after maybe some mild allergies or just a cold. And we didn't think too much of it. And as a father slash primary care family medicine physician, sometimes you try to figure out what hat to wear in this setting. It's a very common occurrence. You just kind of watch and wait and, and see how it goes. Well, this swelling of the right side of the neck started to grow and harden. And that's where we took her to a pediatrician to get evaluated. And she was subsequently started on antibiotics, thinking this was something called a lymphadenitis, which is a swollen, uh, maybe slightly infected gland from a recent infection. After the antibiotics did not work or improve the swelling and the swelling continued to grow, our concerns started to rise more of, you know, what is going on and, and our pediatrician looking at it really didn't think too much of it, but she referred us to an ENT specialist, an ear, nose, throat a surgeon to possibly drain this uh, enlarged lymph node or uh, give it some IV antibiotics. So when we went to go see the ENT, we were told to go get admitted to the hospital first from strong antibiotics to get rid of this infection. This entire time, uh, she was acting fine, just a little bit more tired, but the swelling uh, aesthetically was growing enough where 
it started to start look like a little bit of a deformity. Uh, while we were in the hospital, it was quite an experience, and this is where I slowly realized in medicine there is a lot of humans involved. It's a teamwork approach, but with that comes possibly errors, uh, oversights, and little things that can start occurring that can cause a domino effect. One of the aspects of this hospitalization was blood work wasn't necessarily done at this visit. Examination and evaluation and imaging was done, but really in-depth analysis was not. We were discharged home after three days saying to follow up with ENT outpatient-wise, and this is where my concern really started rising up of what is going on. And in the back of your mind, uh, you start thinking about more ominous issues, and the C word comes up in your mind, but as a father... As anybody, you quickly just shove that down somewhere. You don't want to think about it too much. And as we were waiting, we were back home from the hospital and just concerned. We're not seeing a big improvement. I actually had scheduled Kenza to go see a specialist at Children's Dallas, uh, our large academic institution, which I trained there, so I knew everybody. And her appointment was made, but I think through likely divine intervention and through my faith, I feel like that definitely is the case. The next day after we were home, uh, as a father who maybe didn't pay too much attention, I was changing her on the changing table, and I turned around real quick to grab some wipes or maybe some diaper rash cream, don't remember exactly, but when I turned around, that split second I turned around, she had actually toppled over from the changing table down to the, the ground, the carpet. And that fall was a decent fall, and that's where I, I was freaking out as a dad and really did not know uh, what to do. It was a very rare moment because as a physician, you know what to do, but when it's your own child, everything will kind of freak you out. Even a diaper rash freaks you out. Uh, (laughs) And so uh, this was the first time in our marriage that my wife was calming me down. (laughs) Oh, wow. I I was just, you know, just really concerned, you know, did she hit her head? Is, Is everything okay? So we rushed her to the children's ER near our home. And it is there that um, I actually knew the ER doctor. We were colleagues. And they checked her out. They said everything's fine. They did look at the swollen gland, didn't think too much of it. And we were literally about to get discharged home. And I was like, enough is enough. I'm here in the ER. We went through so much. And I, I knew him. And I was like, listen, can we just do a full lab work here? And there was some hesitation. But in the end, they did it. And once they did that CBC test, a complete blood count, which is a basic test to look at your white blood cells and blood counts. Um, I still remember um, his face as he walks towards our ER patient room and uh, called me to come out with his hand. It's a visual you'll never forget. And walking out, you could just tell in his eyes and face, I knew every moment that this was not going to be any news I want to hear or anything I want to see. But I had no choice but to walk out of that room and meet him there. And as I walked there, I remember him handing me the paper. He didn't need to say anything, knowing that I'm in the medical field. He just handed me the paper and just said, you know, I'm sorry to give you this news. And what it was is uh, a normal, I'm getting into a little detail, but there's a CBC, a complete blood count, and her uh, white blood cells, her immune system cells, were incredibly high. They were at, oh, I still remember the number, 455. So that's 455,000. A normal white blood cell count for a child or an adult can be anywhere between 3 to 11. So 3,000 to 11. Wow. Hers was 455,000. And that is a life-threatening issue. This is called a blast crisis. And so what it means essentially is her blood is so thick 
and viscous due to the uncontrolled uh, cancer, the leukemia, that in essence, my nine-month-old Kenza could have a stroke or a heart attack any minute or any hour. And so it is something that needs to be immediately treated. And so she was, that moment, that paper changed everything for the rest of our lives, rest of her life. Um, we were immediately transferred to Children's Medical Center Dallas, which is the largest kids hospital here, and to academic center. We went straight to the ICU, and she had to undergo a very dangerous procedure called leukophoresis. And what that is essentially is extracting out the thick, viscous blood and cleaning it and, and, and putting it back in. Um, and it sounds very simple, but it's a complicated procedure and very dangerous. But thankfully, she underwent uh, that just fine. And while we were there, it's just you remember everything. You remember the smell. You remember the, you hear the beeps of the machine. You, the, the, the news was getting out to family. And we're just in absolute, just shock. And in that moment, uh, you start meeting with different oncologists, whoever's on call there, and maybe the AML or ALL experts, the leukemia experts come in and speak with you, and everything is just kind of going 1,000 miles an hour. You're trying to process everything. Long story short, she ended up uh, getting admitted, and she was found to have an aggressive, rarer form of acute myeloid leukemia or AML, which is quite rare for someone, obviously, being a pediatric patient, but all, even being less than two years of age. And we immediately had her start on her first round of chemotherapy. So with AML, unlike ALL, which is acute lymphocytic leukemia, the uh, chemotherapy regimens are much more aggressive because this is a much more aggressive cancer. So patients have to remain admitted in the hospital for treatment. And for the next year, pretty much close to the rest of 2016, we lived at Children's Medical Center. She ended up, ended up going through three rounds of chemotherapy, um, which were unsuccessful. After each round, we would do a test to see if there's any cancer cells remaining, and each one uh, did show the leukemia still persistent. And every every round, it was brutal, and that's a, something we can definitely get into, but being a, a parent uh, and trying to soothe a a young infant and try to figure out how do we make them comfortable because they can't really articulate how they feel um, was was really challenging. And every end of chemo round that we completed, it was something where it's almost like the last second of a very close football or basketball game. Your your heart's racing. You're just waiting for those results. And every time it would be a gut punch to hear that you know okay we're doing a new round again. When it got to the third round, we were already warned that if this does not work, the only route moving forward is going to be a bone marrow transplant. And it's around that third round of chemo while she was doing it, uh, we started looking at resources and options to see if there's a match uh, for Kenza for a potential bone marrow transplant. And that's where we came in touch with uh, DKMS and Amy Roseman here in Dallas as a regional director, and I was introduced to her, and we're like family now. She's absolutely uh, wonderful and, and really was a big advocate for us to try to find a match for Kenza through her and our, our close family, friends, and the entire just Dallas-Fort Worth community. Word got out uh, somehow. We're, my wife and I and my immediate family, were, I mean, we're just focused on trying to 
figure out what's going on and be there every day for Kenza. But it was our, our circle, our support network and DKMS included where drives were set up throughout Texas, uh, throughout obviously Dallas area, but also throughout the nation. There were drives in California, Arizona, New York City, Florida. I guess back in 2016 could have been slightly a viral thing. Uh, people got word of it and it was amazing. We had over 50 drives to try to find a match for Kenza and we signed up uh, over 4,000 individuals. Mainly we were focused in targeting minority communities not only to get the word out, but for Kenza's unique heritage, uh, the chances are much higher in someone with her background. Um, through everyone's effort and all the drive uh, individuals that, that signed up, we still could not find a, a match for her that was uh, appropriate uh, for a transplant. And serendipitously, we were coming across uh, different avenues to look at second, third opinions. As I uh, started reaching out to oncologists, hematologists that I knew, and through networking, through residency, medical school, we were connected back and forth with different uh, pediatric oncologists throughout the country. And that's where um, I started really learning about clinical trials and to see what options we have. Speaking with our head transplant physician at Children's for Kenza, uh, he informed me there was a trial that potentially Kenza could qualify for. It was mainly for ALL, but they were enrolling a few AML patients and she would potentially qualify and there was no hesitation on our end. We jumped on it because we knew there's really not many better options outside of that. In this trial, uh, it was a clinical trial that was for AML using immunotherapy, um, CAR-T therapy where T cells were genetically modified in a haploid transplant. And this is where we were going to use either mine or my wife's uh, stem cells. And through our testing, we're trying to see what one is the closest match, although none of them were a complete match. That's where we found out uh, for my, my wife was slightly higher match. And right before when we were finalizing the clearance for her, we found out she was pregnant with our second born. It was oh, Nura. wow. And that was unexpected, but obviously a, a, <laughs> an amazing surprise and a blessing. Uh, Nura is now four years old. Her and Kenza are best friends. But you know, that's where we found out Nora was on her way here. Um, <laughs> so then I was up to bat and there was no other choice. Uh, although my wife technique was a little higher match stem cell wise, uh, haploid wise, um, it was my turn because she could not do it. And so that's where I was given a, a medicine called Philgastrum. And in essence, it just kind of helps boost your white blood cells and stem cells. And they had uh, scheduled me two weeks later for a plasma phoresis taking out my, my T cells that they boosted up with the medicine. In the meantime, Kenza had to undergo a brutal, uh, very uh, strong course of chemotherapy. This stem cell transplant chemo is different from your traditional chemo because this is where they're gonna be wiping out the entire bone marrow. Uh, it's almost like a blank canvas. And the risk of infection where your immune system goes to pretty much, it is zero, is incredibly high in all the complications subsequent. She tolerated it well, um, and about two weeks later after they took my T-cells, they were sent to a lab and genetically modified using a viral vector. Uh, I won't get into too much detail with that, but what it, in essence it is is training those T-cells to attach to certain proteins uh, that could be the, the cancer cells. And also there's a capsaicin kind of gene that they incorporate into the T-cell where 
uh, if the graft versus host becomes uh, extremely severe, life-threatening severe, there's a medicine they can give that will pretty much kill all the T cells immediately to stop the graft versus host. And so that can be a game changer because obviously that is a, a big deal when it comes to post-transplant. Um, she did terrific. I mean, absolutely phenomenal. The, the transplant uh, took place on August 2nd. That was, we call that her rebirth day. And it's the same day as my, my sister's birthday. So we had a big celebration in the, I remember the hospital room there. And we haven't looked back since. Uh, this was August 2nd, 2016. And now we're in 2021. And Kenza is doing absolutely phenomenal. She's a spunky, uh, robust, absolutely uh, intelligent and, and, you know, the apple of our eye. She's a five-year-old who is still laughing at my jokes. and <laughs> Yeah, enjoy that. <laughs> I know. The two girls, I'm still trying to uh, take advantage of them thinking I'm perfect. I know one day they'll realize who I am, but <laughs> we've never looked back. She's doing amazing. She has, you know, no idea the impact that she's had uh, across the country or the world, in fact, because we've had matches found through her drives that she doesn't even know and they'll continue to happen and we're going to continue to strive forward with raising awareness for the bone marrow registry especially in the minority community and that's something definitely i'm passionate about but yes that's pretty much her story and it's been quite a journey just being a father being a physician and, and being a parent of a child with cancer Wow, we covered you covered a lot, and what a story! I my mind is just running with questions and thoughts, and and I'm just so happy that you guys were able to find that clinical trial and get what you needed. And I'm thinking of this little girl not even knowing the impact that she has had on so many other people because of what she needed and and the drives that went on. And I just want to focus on that for a minute. We know how difficult it can be for minorities to understand the importance and, and get the word out and have the potential matches through the swabbing. So I applaud you and your wife and of course DKMS for all you did in that time to raise awareness. And you'll never really know how many lives you saved. What an empowering, incredible feeling that must be. Oh, absolutely. It's sometimes um, almost mind-numbing in a way because once we start to really think about the impact or the domino effect that can occur, it's unbelievable. And I think, especially in the minority community, there may be a little bit of a, uh, a stigma in regards to healthcare or access to healthcare in general or seeing a physician. And there's maybe some um, cultural biases that may be there, but at the same time, there's a lot of the unknown and, and, and not having that access regularly or that relationship with a primary care um, sometimes there's hesitations uh, in regards to signing up for whether it's uh, the bone marrow registry, whether it's vaccines or trials or other issues. And I think awareness and, and really having a grassroots, almost like a political effort, a grassroots campaign to enlighten the community is the best avenue. And for us, uh, we were focused on, on Southeast Asian, uh, Middle East, but in the African or uh, East Asian communities also, there's, there's a big discrepancy in the amount of individuals in the bone marrow registry and, and what we need. And so we're going to continue to work, and, and Kenza will also join her own effort as soon <laughs> enough uh, in regards to just getting the word out for the registry. Absolutely. And I, the clinical trial, wow, 
Tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah. So, you know, the clinical trials are something that few and far between, it is an avenue definitely for patients or caretakers looking over and advocates for the patients to see for options that may be there that could potentially work when really your back's against the wall. In in the setting for Kenza, and and at that time, pediatric cancer research was very limited. Very rarely were there new medications or indications coming out for pediatric leukemia treatments. The treatments we were using, um, which were effective to a certain extent, were used 10 years ago, you know. Okay. And there hasn't been as much of a robust uh, input in R&D into pediatric cancer. And that's changing now through the efforts of many individuals and, and as awareness increases. But because of that, there are going to be individuals where the standard treatment will not work. And as a parent or as a patient, you have to be your biggest uh, advocate or your child's biggest advocate. And to look for leaving no stone unturned is crucial. So asking your oncologist, hematologist, or your own physician, or going to the NIH and doing your own research to see what trials potentially could fit is crucial. And there's no easy way to do it. There are some companies, hopefully, maybe some will get more popular where they can help find trials for you. But really through the internet is the best route or or asking your your oncologist to see if someone could be a, a candidate and what does it mean. For Kenza, when we knew about the trial, it was a no brainer. And that was because we had no other choice. And it was a blessing to have her enroll before the trial closed, and they were willing to accept her as an AML patient, even though the full-fledged trial was more for ALL. And these are all things that are out of our control, but when it came, there was no doubt, no hesitation that this was the route to go, because the alternative was not a good option at all. Of course. Well, you know, I had heard a statistic recently that only 5% of cancer clinical trials are utilized And I'm just so thrilled that we can educate a little bit here on the importance of everything you're saying. Follow your gut, you know, ask lots of questions, get a second opinion, everything you need to do to just make sure that there are options. And I'm I'm so happy to hear that you guys found one and it sounded like they were willing to bend because I think people also think that they're very stringent and they are. But in this case, thank God there was a little bit of wiggle room for you guys, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, there are some strict guidelines of what the trial or the potential clinical trial may may need or have, but it's definitely worth reaching out to the clinical coordinators and see how much flexibility they have, because it's hard to tell from an online website or link. At the same time, um, even certain therapies, I was reaching out all over. And in fact, uh, one physician, Dr. Sahel Mashinsky, is a world-renowned expert in AML at Fred Hutch in Seattle, and I was connected to him through a couple of contacts I had and the discussion I had. His treatments for pediatric AML, sometimes he'll use medicines that were only FDA approved for adults, and there's no studies on pediatric patients, although pathophysiologically should work just fine. Well, the ability to get one-time approvals from insurance companies or from an actual manufacturer are there. It's just you have to dig for this. Yes. And this is something that patients or parents should not hesitate or feel obliged to just fall in line. This is where questions, second, third, fourth opinions are appropriate. I mean, this is life or death, so there's no holding back. And it's your child. I mean, let's talk about being a parent and a doctor, a caregiver. 
just all the many hats that you wore during this. I'm just so impressed <laughs> and in awe of you and, and your wife. Let's give her the credit that's due. Oh my goodness, you guys, in the meantime, you had another child. How are you guys doing? Like, let's talk about that. <laughs> well, we're doing, we're doing great. It is something that has changed us forever. And, you know, in the end, looking at it holistically, we'll say for the better, but it's challenging. Uh, I know through extreme situations like having a child with cancer, there's so many other factors where a husband and wife or a, a, a couple, a partnership may not make it through because of such emotional, physical toll it can take. I think for us, my wife and I kind of went into a survival mode in 2016 through our diagnosis and treatment. It was pretty much, as cliche as it sounds, seeing a huge mountain we have to climb and boulders coming down. How are we going to make it through to the other side? The only way to do it is to look at one day at a time. And I know that mm -hmm. sounds very like a sports cliche or in general, but <laughs> you, it, there's no other way to take it other than, okay, we made it through this week. We did the first round of chemo. And then the next one is let's wait three months till after her treatment to see the response. You know, you'll just, you'll set these goals and they'll slowly, slowly increase and the scale of them will increase too. But you have to take it one day at a time. We went into survival mode. And I think what was eye-opening for us is I think a year after we got transitioned back home from her treatment, she was still had to go through... Um, infusion uh, therapy through a port and taking care of that, doing all the almost like COVID-like protocol of sanitization that we've been doing for four years now, we were doing back then. But it took about a year after we were back home and discharged that it kind of hit us from a mental health standpoint. I would definitely say uh, PTSD or anxiousness, a higher level of uh, mental health uh, kind of concerns can prop up with a traumatic situation like that. And a fine example may be thinking about the worst case scenario in every um, aspect. Sometimes if there's one lab abnormality, which is normal in a medical world, oh, that's nothing to worry about. Well, because of what we went through, my mind will go to uh, the more extreme. Is this subsequent to our treatment? Is this another cancer? Or, and, and, and controlling that thought and, and try to um, be present in the moment and, and enjoy the gift that we were provided um, seeing her is a very easy and a very satisfactory kind of reset button because the mind will always take you there. And so I think for us, when we get in a little tussle or if there's an argument, quickly one of us will start, <laughs> uh, we'll remind each other, what is this? This, uh, this is not worth it. Because we remember we had a brand new home we built uh, and we were living in a 100 square foot hospital room and our happiness was in that 100 square foot. Right there. Our family was there. Oh. We spent, you know, 24 hours there. And literally, that's the only place we wanted to be. And now we're, we've been blessed to be back into, quote unquote, our normal routine. But it, we've been unplugged in a way. And our definition of happiness, what we want in life, what makes us happy, what satisfies us, what makes us angry, really has changed dramatically. Not to say we may not have pity fights or whatnot, but quickly we realize there's no point. Like, let's enjoy the moment. And it's changed us for the better, for sure. Oh, I think you've changed all of us for the better today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting very emotional here because this is uh, such important stuff. Let's wrap things up with how your beautiful little girl is doing today. I want to hear about 
just her life, her resilience, and how she handles it all. Yeah. You know, Kenza is pretty much my twin. So Kenza is <laughs> five and Nora is now just turned four, so very close in age. But we joke around that Kenza and I, not only does she look like me and we're twins, but literally because of her transplant, she has my cells growing. So we joke that we can telepathically talk to each other. <laughs> or one of my buddies made a joke later on, if there was a crime at a scene and there's blood there, the police would come after me because it's literally Omar Durrani's cells, you know. But in essence, her and I have a connection or a bond, obviously, not only being a father, daughter, or maybe um, literally having the stem cells and the same cells, but she and I are very similar. And so at this age, as a five-year-old, she is a joy. I mean, she's absolutely the light of the room and, and is a little joker and cracking jokes on everybody and singing and, and just being very, very lovey. And emotionally, she's very intelligent. And it may have been living in the hospital around that time frame where she mm -hmm. met so many people and nurses and um, maybe that had an influence, but she's such a people person and very, very uh, loving. She's, she's doing great. She's a five-year-old transitioning to uh, kindergarten uh, next year, and we've completed her catch-up immunizations, and, you know, she's living a, a normal uh, life. There's no restrictions or other issues that we have to kind of keep in mind. Her, her follow-ups are going to be really the normal routine pediatric follow-ups. And as of six months ago, she was transitioned to Cancer Survivor Clinic, which I love wow. the name of that clinic. I, uh, and, and so, you know, that's great. Her first cancer survivor visit will be this August. So it'll be every August on her rebirth day. Well, cheers to that. That is just so wonderful. Oh, I want to meet your little girl. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Well, one of these days when I get to Texas. Well, we sure covered a lot today. Is there any closing remarks, anything, Dr. Durrani, that you would like to convey? I, we covered a lot, but any last thoughts? I think, you know, for me, one of the most important points of this is, number one, get out and register for the bone marrow registry if you have not already and tell your family and friends to do so. It's as simple as, you know, going to DKMS or be the match and, and requesting a, a saliva kit. And it, it's covered. And, and once you're registered, who knows, you could be the one to save another child like Kenza or a, another adult and I think that's number one. And number two is if someone is a cancer patient or a parent of a child with cancer, don't hesitate. And I mentioned it before, always ask questions, look for secondary, third options. This is a time to be as aggressive as you can to see what is the best avenue for my child or for myself. Getting that second opinion, that third opinion, doctors, hospitals do not take offense to this. This is something that I absolutely admit is very important. And lastly, if there's something that's concerning to you, uh, if you feel like this test should have been done and it's not done, ask those questions. Set a team meeting with your physicians or your healthcare team. I just want to make it imperative that just don't hold back. And this is your life or your child's life or your family. Be the biggest advocate you can for yourself. Oh, definitely great advice. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Durrani. This was a great session and I'm so thrilled that we had the chance to talk to you. Thank you, Peggy, for having me. This was a pleasure. This has been the Marrow Masters Podcast. Feel free to share this episode via text, email, or social media. For more, follow Marrow Masters in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
And to connect with the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, visit nbmtlink.org or follow the link in our show notes.